It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 797 for the 17th of June, 2022. This week, some scammers are smart enough to create legitimate-looking ploys, but even well-made scams are usually apparent following only a brief inspection. In short circuits, the Windows File Explorer can display thumbnail images of some file types, but not Photoshop files. This is an absurd shortcoming, and there's an easy fix. Is there a digital camera gathering dust around your house? The ubiquitous single-lens reflex camera seems to be nearing the end of its almost 100-year run. And 20 years ago, TechX New York was about to open. We didn't know it then, but the 2002 show was to be its final gasp. The number of participants dropped, the Javits Center wasn't close to being full, and some companies pulled out at the last second. Scammers are a varied lot. Some work hard at their craft and create bait that looks realistic, while others send out gibberish that's unlikely to fool anybody. And yet even those poor attempts do fool some. Let's take a look at some of the recent catches. Check out the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The more realistic the effort, the more likely it is to work for the scammer. But even the most carefully constructed scam is still a scam, and usually obvious signs exist. Consider a message from Microsoft Team. It looks pretty convincing at first sight. Take a second glance, though, and flaws are immediately apparent. Microsoft Team is wrong. It's Microsoft Teams, plural. Now, that's not the kind of error Microsoft would make but that kind of error is easy to overlook by the scammer. The first big clue that this is a scam is the email address. Long, long ago, I had a Hotmail account. Microsoft acquired Hotmail, but I've never associated that account with any Microsoft entity. Yet, that's where the message was sent. Overall, the message was a pretty good attempt. Unusual sign-in activity, it said, and that's likely to get most people's attention. The sign-in details show the attempt originated in Nigeria, but the IP address is shown as 10.112.126.02, and the browser is reported to be CHROM. Chrome? Google's browser is Chrome, with a capital C and an E at the end. But the more telling flaw here is the IP address. Any address that begins with 10 is unroutable, because all addresses from 10.0.0.0 .0 .0 to 10.255.255.255 are private addresses. No browser will ever present with one of those addresses. But many people don't know that. They just see an IP address and they skip over it because it looks real. Messages about possible fraudulent logins invariably have two options. One that's labeled, no, this wasn't me, and a second will either be a button labeled, yes, this was me, or a note that you should ignore the message if it was you. Neither of those options was present in this message. 
And the no, it wasn't me button isn't a link to Microsoft. You suspected that, didn't you? Instead, it goes to a fake site that will attempt to harvest your email address and password when you go there. Some scams, though, are really just spams with lipstick. But as the old saying goes, a pig with lipstick is still just a pig. The spam in lipstick was a message from the contact form on my website. It's the kind of message that could be easily blasted out using email to 10 million people. This is Irina, the message says. I am sending you my intimate photos as I promised. And this is followed by a link that is obfuscated by the tiny URL link shortening service. I don't know anybody named Irina, and she has never promised to send me any intimate photos. In any event, Irina is probably Ivan. But what's the URL? Well, did you know that TinyURL offers users a way to see the full URL so they can check it out before following an unknown link? Start with the TinyURL and add Preview before the domain name. This will reveal the true destination. In this case, it went to stotron.ga. You'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Don't follow it. The domain, stotoran.ga, is a free domain registered to Gabon TLD. Gabon, of course, is a West African nation south of Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, north and west of the Republic of the Congo, adjacent to the Gulf of Guinea and the South Atlantic Ocean. Using PowerShell to safely retrieve the code that runs the website, I can see it's a dodgy porn site that probably should be avoided. But to get back to the looks-legitimate type scams, here's a message that claims to be from United Settlement. United Settlement looks like a legitimate operation that attempts to help people who are in debt get out of debt and clear their credit history. The sender, however, is shown as united.debt.settlement at 100WALR.com. That domain is registered to an unknown organization in Reykjavik, Iceland. It's also worth noting that United Settlement is headquartered on West 37th Street in New York City, but the email claims United Settlement is at 23638 West Lyons Avenue in Newhall, California. Would you be surprised to learn that the California address does not exist? The street address actually does exist in Santa Clarita, but the scammer claims to be on the fourth floor, and the building at that address is a one-story building. Are you checking these out on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com? Here's one I'm still trying to sort out. A system notification from blin.com, that's my domain, tells me that two unreceived emails are stuck on the server. If I don't follow the link to retrieve the delayed messages within 24 hours, the messages will be deleted. Well, I run my own server, and I know a couple of things. First, messages do not get stuck on a server. And second, I have no notification process in place for stuck messages because, as I noted, messages do not get stuck. At first, it appeared that the scammer was attempting to hide behind a fake googleapis.com address, but the address was really hosted by appspot.com. But I looked a little further. Both googleapis.com and appspot.com are registered to Google. So, I reported the scam to Google. You will probably be surprised, not at all, to learn that there has been no response from Google. Not even an autoresponder message. 
Some scams jump up and down, shout, and would wave their arms if they had arms. Here's one of those. A message sent from Contable Renner to Contable Renner wants to know when I will send a payment receipt. A message that has been sent to the sender is a pretty clear indication that we're dealing with a scammer who doesn't quite understand how to use email. That should be it. End of story. Nothing to see here. Just move along, folks. But, of course, I can't do that. I'm supposed to believe the message is from a company in Spain. Well, I've never dealt with a company in Spain, and the sender's email address ends with .cf. I had to research that one. It's the Internet Country Code top-level domain for the Central African Republic. Once again, that should be it. End of story. Nothing to see here. Just move along, folks. But I still can't do that. The message says, I enclose proof of payment corresponding to invoice number 814. I am waiting for the receipt. Reality check time here. If Contable Renner has proof of payment, he doesn't need a receipt. He already has proof. So, once again, this should be end of story, nothing to see here, just move along, folks, but there is more. The attached proof of payment is an Excel file. Well, anybody can create an Excel file, so it can't be legitimate proof of anything. And no, I will not open that Excel file. And that is it. End of story, nothing to see here, and I'm done. I have received sometimes as many as a dozen scams in Japanese almost every day for the past several months. The simple fact that they are in Japanese is sufficient to inform me that it's a scam. The messages are unexceptional for the most part. They claim to be from a Japanese consumer goods and finance conglomerate, and the scammers have done a pretty good job of making the messages appear to be from a legitimate company. One bit of information can't be faked, though. The originating IP address. The address where the message originated, 120.48.26.97, is in Beijing, China. Would a large Japanese company send messages to the United States from China? I don't think so. Add that to the fact that I don't have a credit card from a Japanese company, and the fact that I don't read or speak Japanese, and what we have is clearly a scam. Another scam I see frequently is the one that claims to have been sent from my own email address by somebody who has infiltrated my computer and will send compromising messages to everyone in my contacts folder unless I pay them hundreds or thousands of dollars in the next couple of days. The easiest way to confirm that this is a scam is to examine the routing headers. Microsoft's Outlook makes this difficult, but it is possible. Most other email programs make it easy. What you'll find is the message didn't originate from your email account. So just delete the message and get on with your day. And here's one final example. The United Nations does not use Gmail. The UN also does not hold lottery drawings to allocate COVID relief funds. I'd like to think that most people would recognize that a message supposedly from the UN asking for the recipient's full name, address, date of birth, and telephone number for what it is, an attempt to steal the recipient's identity. Apparently, that's not the case, and that's what the crooks depend on. Like ants at a picnic, scammers infest the Internet, there's no shortage of thieves and crooks anywhere, but the internet makes thieving easier. The crooks don't need to be near you. You'll never see them. 
It's virtually impossible to catch them if they're in Russia or China, and unlikely even if the scammer lives in the house or apartment next door to you. All we can do is treat every communication with reasonable, rational suspicion and make every effort to be smarter than the crooks. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, sometimes one has to wonder what Microsoft developers do during the day. Sometimes it seems that they spend all of their time working on spiffy enhancements while ignoring essential features. As an example, consider the Windows File Explorer. There are several view options, such as details, list, and several sizes of icons. Choosing any of the icons options will display thumbnail images of some graphics files. This is useful when you're looking at a directory with a lot of GIF, PNG, or JPEG files. It should be equally useful when you have a directory full of Adobe Photoshop PSD files, but it isn't. That's because Microsoft hasn't bothered to have its developers create the code needed to show thumbnail images for PSD files. Why? Well, after all, Photoshop has only been around for the last 33 years or so. We could spend a lot of time trying to figure out why Microsoft doesn't create a function that is so obviously essential. But by default, the Windows File Explorer won't display thumbnails for a lot of other file types either. When you've grown sufficiently weary of that shortcoming, start your browser and visit the Sage Thumbs section on SourceForge. Download the free application and install it. Then, selecting one of the icon views in the Windows File Explorer, or Cuter if you prefer it, will display thumbnails for PSD files and more than 150 other file types. This raises the question, if someone who has developed a free application can provide thumbnail images for more than 150 file types, why can't Microsoft developers manage to do this? Avoid those kinds of thoughts and questions, because that way lies madness. Instead, just download Sage Thumbs, install it, carry on, and be done with it. And surprise, that's not all Sage Thumbs can do. Right-click an image and the context menu will display Sage Thumbs options to send files via email and convert files to more common formats such as JPEG, BUMP, or PNG. The Program Options dialog allows the user to enable or disable support for any file type. If some other program already displays the previews or you don't want to see previews in the Windows File Explorer, you can disable the file type right there. Sage Thumbs is a free, open-source application. It works well, it provides features that Microsoft doesn't, and it offers even more useful capabilities. So what's not to like?
When 35mm cameras were introduced in the 1930s, they were revolutionary. Instead of sheet film cameras that were slow and extremely cumbersome, a 35mm camera could be carried in one hand. The quality wasn't as good, and many professionals ignored them for decades. By the 1950s, 35mm rangefinder cameras were the clear choice of serious amateurs. Professionals started using them in the 1970s, but have we perhaps reached the end of the line? My father had an Argus 35mm rangefinder camera. I bought my own Pentax single-lens reflex camera around 1963 and a Nichromat less than 10 years later. My choice was Nikon for many years, but I eventually switched to Canon. How many people do you know who carry around a 35mm camera these days? I even leave the Canon at home most of the time and carry a Sony point-and-shoot camera. But a smartphone is often my choice for taking pictures. The smartphone can't take a series of a dozen photos in a second, but I rarely need that ability. It doesn't have much of a zoom range. The camera in the smartphone does a good enough job most of the time. Professional photographers won't be using smartphones anytime soon for commercial jobs because they need the capabilities provided by professional cameras. But how many professional photographers are left? The choices for amateurs is wide. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see a few examples, mainly from the high end of the spectrum. For example, the Canon EOS 1D SLR, $6,500 for just the body. You'll need to buy lenses for it. It takes high quality exposures. There's the Canon EOS R3, a mirrorless camera, 6000 bucks for just the body. You have to buy lenses for it. It also takes very high quality exposures. There's the Canon G5X, 900 bucks with a decent zoom lens. Now, it won't match the functionality of the cameras that cost six times more, but it takes very good quality exposures. How about the Canon SX6 20HS? 320 bucks has an astonishing 25 times optical zoom lens. To accommodate that zoom range, the sensor is small, but it's a great camera to take on vacation, and the image quality is adequate. There's the Sony RX100 Mark VI, 1200 bucks. It's a small, light camera, has some surprising pro features, and it takes very high-quality exposures. You may have noticed that I said these cameras take high-quality or good-quality exposures. Exposures, not pictures. The quality of the picture depends entirely on the photographer's capabilities. And that leads me to the device that I use more than any other for normal family pictures, a smartphone. The Google Pixel 6 Pro costs $900. It fits in my pocket and creates technically good JPEG exposures that rival those from the Sony RX100 and can even capture RAW images. In addition to taking photographs, the Pixel 6 Pro can send and receive email, visit websites, tell me how to get from one location to another and estimate my arrival time, show me office documents and the schedule for upcoming TechBiter Worldwide programs, send and receive messages, display real-time weather information, show newspapers from around the world, let me play games, show streaming video, wake me in the morning, keep track of my calendar, and remind me about tasks. Oh, and it also makes phone calls. Professionals will continue to use digital SLR cameras and the new mirrorless models, but I have to think that the camera market for all but the most serious amateur photographers is soft and nearing collapse. <laughs> 
Your smartphone can even display this week's 20 years ago section on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In 2002, TechX New York was about to get underway for what would be its final run. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>